Hey, everyone. This is Chris Ryan from The Ringer. As many of you have heard by now, we lost a treasured colleague and friend over the weekend. Jonathan Charks passed away on Saturday. John was 34. He leaves behind a wife and a son, and we are obviously mourning his loss and sending all of our love to his family right now. If you go to theringer.com slash Jonathan Charks, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S, you will find a memorial page for John which has links to his GoFundMe that benefits his family and the amazing writing he did throughout his experience. I encourage you to go there. And if you can, please support the Charks family. Briefly, I will just say that John was among the first people that we hired to work for The Ringer. So he was instrumental in defining the voice and perspective of the site. He has as much to do with what this place is as anyone else. And throughout his experience with cancer, John communicated eloquently about the challenges he was facing, both through his writing and his podcasting. You could never stop John from talking about his passions. It's one of the things I loved about him. Over the last few months, you know, whenever we would talk, whenever I would reach out to see how he was doing, I would try to keep it very John-focused. And the next thing I knew, we would be talking about James Harden or Better Call Saul. He really loved this stuff. Uh, he loved talking about it, celebrating it, debating it, illuminating it. We're going to keep putting out our pods and writing while we grieve but we wanted to let folks know that John was in our hearts and that his family was in our thoughts. Thanks for listening. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets, and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, won a couple of Super Bowls, of course, at the New England Patriots. It is James White. James, man, thanks for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. No problem at all. Happy to be here. Yeah, and we're happy, too, because you're going to be joining us this year after most Patriots games, which is going to be awesome because I can scream about a lot of things, James, but I'm happy <laughs> I'm happy you're going to be here because you know what's actually going on in the field. You've been in a bunch of these games, big games, so I'm excited that we're going to have you on board after most Patriots games this season. That's going to be great. Um, going to have a different perspective now, but you know I'm not too far removed, so I kind of have a, sort of an idea what's going on in there, so it's going to be kind of fun. Yeah. And speaking of that, it is interesting. I feel like you probably have or will probably have the best answer for this compared to anybody because you were actually with the team in training camp before you retired due to the injury. So we made a lot of the changes to the offense, the play calling, et cetera, entering the season. We've seen it after one week so far. But how big of a change was it in terms of the whole operation there? What happened to the offense compared to where it was with Josh last year? 
It's a huge change. Uh, new verbiage, new schemes. I mean, you're using some of the verbiage that we use with Josh, but most of the stuff is different. So it's a, a learning curve for everybody. Um, for most of the veterans, you know, for myself, being with Josh for eight years of my career, we did things one way. So you kind of like brush against the new stuff. You want to kind of do things with what you know. I think as, you know, OTAs and training camp went on, guys just start to get a better understanding of what our identity was going to be and what, you know, Matty P and Bill and what they were trying to get executed. And I think as the season went on or as the preseason went on, I think guys started to get more and more comfortable. Obviously for them, the preseason games didn't go so great. But I thought on Sunday they did a good job on that first drive. I think that drive was probably the most important possession for me because, you know, everybody had all these questions of how it was going to look. And I thought they looked pretty good running the ball, throwing the ball. Obviously it resulted in an interception. It could have been PI and whatnot, but I thought it was good execution and a sign of what could possibly become. Yeah. That's interesting. You say it too, because I felt the same way. The first drive of the game, it was going smoothly, of course, until the interception. And then the best drive of the game was right out of the gates there in the third quarter. So I'm interested, James, like now that Bill Belichick obviously has more of a role in the offense than he had with Josh, how much do you think he's involved in that those scripted plays to begin the game and the plays coming out of halftime? Because it did feel like that's when the Patriots had most of their success. Oh, he's definitely involved in it. Um, Bill's a great coach. He's very detail oriented and he's been a, a great defensive coach for, you know, however many years. And I think a great play caller could come from being a defensive coach because they know what hurts defenses. They just have to figure out when to call it and what situations. So I think they did a great job starting, you know, each half and whatnot. They just got to do a better job of going out and being consistent with that, not having the the mental breakdowns, the MEs, being in second and long, third and long is, you know, hard to overcome those issues when you're facing a good defense like the Dolphins, who's been pretty consistent at, you know, creating turnovers and, you know, kind of wreaking havoc. And especially on us, that, that first game of the year, I know. <laughs> Like my rookie year, we played down in Miami in 2014. I wasn't playing, but like we jumped out of the gate on them. And I think like after half, I feel like we didn't even score a touchdown or maybe we just scored a field goal or something like that. But for whatever reason, you know, Pacers, Dolphins, <laughs> those games are always tough down there. And like they, you know, they've had the upper hand the past few times. Yeah, well, that's interesting, too, because what is it? Is it just like because, OK, the Dolphins have been pretty good the past couple of years, really going back to 2020. They've been a respectable team, but. For a large portion of your career, that wasn't a very good team. Is it just like the heat? Is it the weather? Is it the surface? What is it, man? <laughs> no, honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> I, don't think any, I don't think anybody knows what it is. You know, sometimes we travel there on Thursday to get there early. I know they traveled there on, I think, Monday this time to, to get there early, to get acclimated to everything. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Just probably a little combination of everything. Those division games, you honestly never know what's going to happen, no matter if a team's 0-16 or whatever. Like, you teams know each other very well and, you know, anybody can win the NFL teams, no matter what a team's record is, I promise you a lot, 90% of the time, those guys are going out competing and trying to win the football game. It's, it's never going to be easy, no matter what a team's record is. Yeah, fair enough. I want to circle back to something we were talking about briefly earlier, just in terms of the play calling and whatnot, because I mean, James, you know, what's going on here. So, we thought maybe, okay, maybe they'll get Bill O'Brien from Alabama. Maybe Bill will go outside the family tree, hire somebody that wasn't with the organization after Josh left. And then we we find out that, well, it looks like it's going to be Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. So, you know, in the media, everybody's going nuts. What is Even the fan base, <laughs> what's going on? What was the reaction there with some of the players? Were you guys like, eh, this is a little puzzling? Or did you guys just trust the process, so to speak? 
At first, it's definitely puzzling because you're kind of anticipating somebody coming in or whatever, or, or whatever, quote unquote, you know, highly touted person or whatever, whatever, and all that. I guess that's what most guys were expecting. But, you know, after getting in the building, I think guys got to better understand, like I said before, what they were trying to get executed, what they're trying to accomplish. And Maddie P, he coached offensive line earlier in his career. So he's familiar with the offensive side of the football. And he's been a heck of a defensive coach as well throughout his career. So I think everybody has to, you know, give him a chance to a rush to judgment because just because you're, you know, offensive guru doesn't mean you're going to go out there and win football games. You know, we struggled down in Miami, even with Josh. So it's not like that's just, you know, one thing or the other things just happen, but you got to give these guys a chance to go out there and execute. I think they'll get better and better each and every week. That offense is highly underrated. Those guys <laughs> eliminate the miscues. You know, they have receivers, offensive line, two good tight ends, good quarterbacks. You got a young, talented quarterback. I think you got to let, let them evolve and they'll, they'll grow as the season goes on. Yeah, well, speaking of that, because it did feel like in that game on Sunday, they were trying to find what worked and they found some things that did, some things that didn't. From your perspective, what stuck out to you where you're like, OK, yeah, this is something they can do a lot more of going forward? Taking some shots down the field. I think like the the times when they try to do it, aside from the interception when he threw it to Devontae, like, those guys were getting behind the defense. I know later in the game, Nelson Aguilar, he got behind. You know, Nick Needham and, and then a couple plays later, Kendrick Bourne did as well. Jacoby made that nice catch. So I think they got to take some more shots down the field and keep the defense on. And so I think that opens up everything. If those safeties have to stay back, maybe end up putting the defense into two high situations and, you know, creates more openings in the run game. I think that'd be really good. If they take some more shots. Yeah, that's it. That I was looking at that too because like Max numbers going back to college like were really good on deep passes, and I know that was like one of the critiques of him coming out his arm strength, etc. But James, it does feel like he does throw a pretty deep ball. Is that do you do you have that same take? I, I definitely agree. I've caught a few of myself, <laughs> and uh, I caught one versus the Dolphins uh, last year, week one, and I've caught a bunch of them in practice as well. He he has a good touch and. Like the deep ball is not all about arm strength unless you're waiting to the last minute to throw it. It's all about anticipation and kind of throwing your receivers open as well. And he has that. I think that the arm strength, you know, stuff that's can be highly overrated. There's a there's a time and a place for it when you have to throw it hundred miles an hour to get in the tight window and things of that nature. But I think most guys catching the football don't want a guy throwing it hundred miles an hour. Yeah, that and I remember that play, right? That that was the play where it was like he dropped it right in the bucket to you, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was similar, kind of like you know, Jacoby. I know he caught it differently, but just giving your receiver an opportunity to to make a play on it where the defender can't quite, you know, get to it. I think that's what's most important. Yeah. So what's Mac like? Because we don't really hear a lot of it like publicly, whatever. I know his his girlfriend's big on Instagram and whatnot, but what <laughs> what's he like? I mean, it seems like James, he's like 100% focused on football. Is he a funny guy? Is he fun to be around? What's he like? 100%. He, he's fun to be around. He gets along with everybody. I think like last year, you know, me being an older guy and seeing the way he came in and worked and got better and better every week. And, you know, he started to take command of the huddle. He started to earn the respect of, you know, guys that have been in the organization for quite some time. And it's hard to do that at quarterback. You're asked to do quite a few things from, you know, knowing the routes, knowing what you have to do in, you know, on run plays, pass plays, alerts. There's so much that goes in a quarterback's head and things that he has to process. But he was able to process it and get an understanding of it, you know, very quickly. I've seen 
you know, younger quarterbacks coming to our organization is very puzzling at times. It takes him a while to get adjusted, but he was able to pick it up very quickly. But he's very driven. You can see he's he's motivated. He wants to be the best out there. And like I said, he has the right mindset. And I think he has the vote of confidence from everybody on that team. He's he's a great guy and he works extremely hard. Yeah, and you mentioned like the veterans getting used to some of the new stuff with the offense. What about for a second-year quarterback like Mac? How difficult is that? Because obviously he's going to know where everybody's going to be. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's, it's hard because you're going from one system to the other, and and year two you 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 want to be going from the you know what you did last year to the next year. So just believing in the process, I think he's he's starting to do that. And like I said, they they had some big plays out there, and I think they had some big plays that they left out on the field as well. Um, like I said, he, he'll get better and better every week. And like I said, everybody has to get a grasp of it, not just him. Um, I think that's what offense is all about. It can't be one person doing one thing, another person not believing in it. Everybody has to be on the same page in order for it to work. Because if one guy does the wrong thing, like it happened in the game, it's a strip sack and a touchdown. So mm-hmm. you're putting yourself behind the eight ball. So I think guys just got to believe and go out there and execute on a consistent basis. Yeah, well, speaking of um... – Cleveland plays on the field. One guy that really wasn't on the field was Kendrick Bourne. And then we see him get on the field. He has that 41-yard reception. And I'm like, where's he been the whole game? Now, we know that there was stuff going on. He didn't have the best training camp. But James, I mean, last year, the end of the season, I felt like he turned into the Patriots' best receiver. I mean, he, even in the Bills game where the Patriots really struggled, I felt like two of the offensive players that really showed themselves well were Mack and Kendrick Bourne. So, what do you think's going on this week with Kendrick Bourne in terms of do you think he'll be more part of the game plan against Pittsburgh? I think he definitely will be, especially after, you know, getting in there for only two plays and you make a play. It's a way for you to get back out on the field. He's a guy who brings good energy. Everybody in the locker room loves being around him. He's very energetic all the time, meeting rooms, 6 a.m., whatever it is. He's dancing, moving around. He has a good vibe about him. But I said, I I was wondering why he wasn't out there as well. I thought maybe he was hurt or something. But like I said, coach is going to make decisions for what they you know believe is best for the team they're going up against. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they think it was a good matchup. I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> I, thought, I thought he should have been out there. And like I said, I think he'll be out there more versus Steelers. They have a good defense and they can create some problems for him. So you being in that locker room in the past, was there any bit of you like when you knew that Kendrick, when you're watching the game and you're like, where the hell is Kendrick born? Were you thinking... Okay, like I've seen this with different players before. He must have done something that aggravated Bill. I have no idea. It could, it could be practice, it could be training camp. I, I don't know. You never really know. Even being in the locker room, you still don't know sometimes. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a coach's decision at the end of the day. Things happen. Like I said, Bill's trying to do what he thinks is best for the team. And I said, everybody has to go from there. Yeah, and Jonu Smith, of course, last year he came over, got the big contract, and a bit of a disappointing year. I mean, it felt like they really were trying to make him part of the offense early, and then he kind of tailed off, of course, wasn't involved as much in the second half of the season. James, I felt like Sunday they did a good job getting him the ball, getting him the ball in space. He was running people over down into the red zone. So what do you think of Jonu Smith's second year compared to the first year? You think they'll find a better way to get him involved? Most definitely. I think it's going to be a big year for him. He's a guy. Like I say, get him the ball as much as possible, whatever, hand it to him, let him line up at Wildcat, do whatever you got to do, because he's one of those guys, nobody wants to tackle him. He's big, he's strong, he's fast, he can run routes. I think last year, I mean, he started off a little slow and whatnot, then he kind of just turned into 
mostly a blocker at the end of the day. But I think this year they'll do ways splitting them out wide, getting them some easy catches and just letting them run. Because you saw he caught a few little screen passes. He's bouncing off of people. He, you can see he brought – he's bringing a little energy to him as well. Last year he didn't really do that as much. I think he's more comfortable being there. And I think he's hearing what everybody's saying about his down year or whatnot. I think he's ready to go. I think he's going to be big for the past this year. Yeah, I mean, he is an absolute beast when he gets the ball in his hands. I yeah. mean, that guy is – he is huge. <laughs> yeah. So – in terms of just like some of the changes, uh, just circling back to that real quickly, do you think it's the most, because we saw the line struggle on a couple of plays, of course, the miscommunication with Cole Strange and Trent Brown. Is it the most difficult on those guys, to, with the exception of Mac? Is that who it hurts the most? It's definitely difficult on them. It's just, it's communication for the O-line at the end of the day. If everybody's not on the same page, there's going to be unblocked guys in the run game, unblocked guys in the passing game. I think, I know, I don't know how much all those guys have, but now on the field together during, you know, their entire training camp. I know Isaiah has been banged up a little bit and David wasn't out there in the beginning of the training camp. So <clears throat> I think as they gel as a core, they'll get better and better, especially in the run game. Cause we have some really good run blockers. And like I said, with some really good backs. I thought, I thought they did a fairly good job in the beginning and then spurts getting breaking off six, seven yard runs. And then it'd be a, a negative one, negative run or a gain of one or something like that. So, they just got to block better on a consistent basis. And that just comes down to, you know, running the right plays versus the right looks and just going out there and dominating the people in front of them. Yeah. What do you think of Ramondre Stevenson? Because I, I mean, you mentioned that the, they get some good backs there. I know they use Ty Montgomery a little bit in that role. That's sort of, you used to have the third down role. You think Ramondre Stevenson, I mean, you're, you've been one of the most successful Patriots receivers out of the backfield. Do you think he can take over that role at some point? He definitely could be one of those guys. Uh, he's a bigger guy, but, Guy's quick. <laughs> he's, almost, he's almost as quick as me for you know how big he is. And I said last year he started off a little slow as well, but as the year went on, they started using him more and you know catching the ball, running routes out of the backfield. He can do it. He can go out, run a slant, run a sluggo, run option routes through the middle, and he's hard to tackle. He can make guys miss, and he could be a special player. But all those guys can do it. Damien can do it. Ty can do it. Pierre can do it. That whole group of guys can do it. I think they may do a little bit by committee and whoever's out there, you know, on that drive will probably stay out there on third down. I think all those guys can execute it. The same things that I did. Okay, James. So I want to get to the glory days a little bit here, of course, because your tenure with the Patriots, you win the three Super Bowls with Brady and Belichick. What's worse? I mean, maybe you've never experienced either one because I mean, you never fumble, you never lost the fumble, correct? <laughs> yeah. Never lost one. <laughs> you never lost it. Okay. So what's worse getting yelled at by Bill or Tom? Ooh. I say I say Tom for sure. Uh everybody gets yelled at by Bill. You get yelled at by Tom, especially like in the middle of the game or something. You you feel that for sure. Because <laughs> you know, Tom doesn't always, he's pretty reserved for the most part. And then when things aren't going so well, you or you, you know, quite make a mistake at the wrong point in time during the game, he'll kind of get at you a little bit, man. Kind of hurts your heart. <laughs> <laughs> would any besides Bill, would anybody yell at him? Would Edelman yell at him or somebody along those lines? Oh yeah, definitely Julian for sure. Like I said, you you gotta love like Julian and and his relationship. Those guys they <laughs> they poke at each other all the time, and you know, you know Julian he's, he's like the only guy in the locker room that would kind of you know poke the bear a little bit. And when other guys, nobody really said too much to Tom, but Julian is one of those guys. He'll laugh and joke with him, and on the field, if you know Julian wasn't liking something. He would say it, <laughs> as most people may know. So. 
Well, what, so was Gronk just like quiet? He, he didn't. He wouldn't really say anything until he used to get a touchdown or something along those lines. Yeah, still wouldn't say anything. <laughs> just, <laughs> just spike the ball and go back to the sideline. But I love Gronk, man. He brought he brought great energy. Just just have fun out there. Just wish he never got banged up because he he'd still be the best right now if he was still playing. You remember the game? I think it was it was against the Colts because it was a former Patriot. I think it was Sergio Brown. Where after the game, he said he threw he he blocked him like all the way into the stands almost. Yeah, yeah. What did he say? Like he needed to throw him out of the club. Oh yeah, yeah, that was. I think that was my second year. I got <laughs> that play was crazy, but yeah, Gronk was just the complete tight end. Just could run with the ball in his hands, could catch, you know, cross the middle, take his break off you, break a hundred tackles, go score and. The best part about him is his run blocking. He's just one of those guys. Most tight ends these days are a glorified receiver, but he wasn't. He wasn't that. He's a guy who can get physical in the trenches, and you can run behind him whenever you wanted to. Yeah, absolute beast. So most points in a Super Bowl game, twenty for you, tied for the most touchdowns in a game, most receptions you have fourteen. So you didn't get the Super Bowl MVP. They gave that to the Brady guy. I, I felt at the time, and this isn't me going back. I felt that you deserve to be the MVP. So do you get anything for these achievements here? Um, that was actually the, the first year they stopped doing, giving away the MVP truck for the Super Bowl. So that was unlucky, but uh, I actually ended up going on Conan O'Brien like a few weeks later, and he actually gifted me a truck on the show, which was pretty cool. That was a really cool experience. Never really been on any type of talk show thing like that. So that was pretty surreal. Wait, so it's from Conan, like Conan yeah. and his team gave you the truck? Yeah, they did. <laughs> oh, that's pretty sweet. Man. Yeah, it was cool. He's a, he's a great guy. All right. And hey, before we let you go, so that game, of course, we all know the 28 to three comeback, but you guys are also down 21 to three at halftime. And we all know it's an extended halftime because of the performance and all that. So when you guys are in the locker room, is it just like business as usual? Is somebody giving up? Is somebody giving a fired up speech? Like what's happening between halves there? Um, I'm pretty sure it was just like Deron Harmon. He's just like, we got to believe type of thing and just got to be better. It wasn't even really too many coaching points because, I mean, we were kind of driving the ball a little bit, just getting stalled in the red zone or right after we crossed the 50-yard line and things of that nature. I had a couple turnovers. So it wasn't anything outrageous that was said in the locker room. I think it's just simply just play better and go out there, compete, and try and make it a game. And eventually we just scratching and clawing and, they gave us a few gifts <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, everything worked out for us. Um, we definitely needed, definitely needed some of their help for sure, but we made the right plays when, you know, the time called for it. And like I said, the odds of us winning that game by numbers was probably slim to none, but like I said, they, they gave us some opportunities and then it started to make everyone believe more and more. And once we got it within like the seven points, we were like, all right, this, <laughs> this game's going to be ours now. Yeah, I know, like, from a Patriots fan's perspective, like, people would say, oh, yeah, we thought they are going to win when they were down 28-3. to I'll be honest. I did not think you guys were going to come back when you were down 28-3. to I know you guys had to believe it. But any fan, James, that says to you, hey, I knew we were coming back, don't believe them. There's yeah. no way they believe yeah. that. They're probably just like, there's a chance, but it might yeah. not happen. <laughs> yeah, there's All a right. chance. <laughs> <laughs> that is James White, of course member of the Patriots, will be a member eventually of the Patriots Hall of Fame, three-time Super Bowl champ, bunch of records we went through, and he's going to be with us during the football season. James, we'll talk again after the Pats-Ravens game in week three. Thanks so much for the time, man. Really enjoyed it. No problem at all, man. Have some fun. Looking forward to it. All right, coming up next, we got to get into this Kendrick Bourne thing again because this story continues to get more and more weird by the day. 
football season is underway, so now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Because right now, new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's free bets back if your first bet doesn't win. And if you're not in a sportsbook state and new to fantasy, new customers get a free single-game entry when you sign up. Just use the promo code PIKE to get in on the action. Then you can turn game day into payday all season long. I'm looking at one game coming up this weekend, the Saints and Tom Brady and his Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Saints plus 122 on the money line. Remember, Brady only has one win against the Saints since he went to Tampa, and that was in the playoffs. I like the Saints to win that game. I actually like what I saw from New Orleans over the weekend. Nice comeback by Jameis Winston and even a better press conference, actually. Play your way and bet on more than just the final score. Wager on everything from touchdowns to total yards to catches. Don't fumble your chance to get a no-sweat first bet or a free DFS single-game entry with the promo code PIKE. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 21-plus in select states to play on Sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com to see fantasy eligibility and terms for both offers. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expire 14 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, 1-877-8-HOPE-NY, or text HOPE-NY-467-369 in New York. Tennessee Red Line, 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee, 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome back into Off the Pike. A lot of fun with James White. I mean, he's going to be a massive addition to the show. Some great stuff on Brady, some great stuff on Edelman, and also, how about the insight on the play-calling situation? That's what I found fascinating, right? Because the players are sort of like us. They didn't think it was normal either that Matt Patricia was going to be the play caller. Nobody thought it was normal, including the players, which actually brings me to something else. So Tommy Curran, who we had on the pod a couple of weeks ago, he dropped a nugget today on Kendrick Bourne in that situation. He said that Bourne was late to a meeting. That's essentially why he didn't play in that second preseason game. And since then, he's been in Matt Patricia's doghouse, okay? Not Bill Belichick's doghouse, Matt Patricia's doghouse, okay? So you can't let Kendrick Bourne off the hook naturally for being late to a team meeting. Like, you got to show up in time. I understand all that. I'm not letting him off the hook for that. But we also got from Andrew Callahan of the Herald, who we also had on the pod, 
that he says, my understanding is Bourne's issues with the offense have been about targets. Okay. So I hate that the Patriots right now find themselves in this situation with Kendrick Bourne. So just think about this. Last year, Kendrick Bourne, second half of the season, and really at the end of the season, has a really good stretch there, along with Mac Jones, one of the only Patriots that actually showed up for the playoff game against the Buffalo Bills. So Bourne, my assumption would be that he believed entering this season, he would be more of a prominent player. He would have a featured role, right? And then he falls behind guys like Nelson Aguilar, Jacoby Myers, and Devontae Parker during training camp. So there was so much shit going on at training camp, putting the new scheme in. But from my perspective, another thing that should have been part of training camp is they should have featured Kendrick Bourne more. And I'm not defending him being late, but part of putting it in an offensive system isn't just about all this crap about the outside zone running scheme and all the stuff we've heard about for months. Part of it is finding a way to get your best players the football. And the Patriots, one of their most talented offensive players, is Kendrick Bourne. That should have been part of the offensive program. Get him the rock. Now, Andrew Callahan also followed up on a tweet today that the Patriots saw Bourne as their fourth best receiver coming out of camp, which means this, essentially. Training camp for the Patriots, if this is true, was a fucking failure, right? There's no way that this should have happened. There needed to be an effort, first of all, to get the guy more of a prominent role. But how was he fourth in their mind coming out of training camp? And the other thing you got to ask yourself about the disciplining of Kendrick Bourne, Kendrick Bourne barely playing in week one, and obviously Kendrick Bourne being unhappy during training camp, this disciplining of Bourne, what did it do for the team? Well, I'll tell you what it did for the team. It hurt the quarterback. Mac doesn't have a top tier weapon, and he doesn't right now have a game changer. And look, I'm not telling you that Kendrick Bourne is one of the best five to 10 receivers in the NFL, but he's the Patriots' best chance at having a legitimate, bona fide number one option. He was at times a game changer last year. And so what they need to do now is get him the hell out of the doghouse and start featuring him in games. So basically, the other part of this, too, in terms of that he was the fourth best receiver coming out of camp, the other thing that doesn't make sense to me about this is, so did they just essentially evaluate the, the team by what happened in the two and a half to three weeks of training camp, whatever the length of time there was, and just ignore everything that happened last season with not only Kendrick Bourne, but the other players that apparently were better than Kendrick Bourne entering the season. Every indicator tells you that Bourne has the best chance to be a big time player for this team. So if you just look at some of these things, so let's start with this 3.3 yards of separation per out last year for Kendrick Bourne. That's the same as Debo Samuel, Chris Godwin, and Travis Kelsey. That's a pretty good neighborhood to be living in, right? <laughs> Those guys are pretty good players. You look at the other guys that were in this group of four receivers, of course, Thornton dealing with the injury, Myers, and he was in college last year. Myers was at 2.8 last year compared to the 3.3 for Bourne. Aguilar was at 2.6. Devontae Parker was at 1.7 yards of separation per out last year. You know where that ranked in the entire NFL? Dead last. Okay. And I get it. That's not his thing. He is a contested catch guy. Although I don't believe into this bullshit that Ryan Fitzpatrick was saying a couple of weeks ago. He's an 80 20 guy instead of a 50 50 guy. I get it. Leads the NFL since 2019 in contested catches. But I know this. I watched him play last weekend. He played all 57 offensive snaps. He had one catch for nine yards. Kendrick Bourne played two snaps and had one catch for 41 yards. How can anybody say 
that Devontae Parker deserves all the offensive snaps. And essentially, you're only going to put Kendrick Bourne out there in garbage time. It makes no sense to me. And then I look at this. Okay, so let's go through a couple of other things. Yards per reception last season. Bourne, 14.5. Aguilar, the deep threat, 12.8. Parker, 12.9. Myers, 10.4. So Bourne better in that statistical category. How about catch rate? Kendrick Bourne, 78.6%. That ranked third in the entire NFL last season. In the entire league, Kendrick Bourne in catch percentage. Myers, 65.8%. Aguilar, 57.8%. Our friend Devontae Parker that played all 57 snaps, 54.8%. That's really, really bad. Okay, then you look at the rating when targeted. Bourne, 132.1. That was fifth in the NFL. Parker, 86.3. Myers, 81. Aguilar, 77.1. How about Yak per reception? Born 7.1. Aguilar, 3.2. Myers, 2.7. Parker, 2.6. Those are brutal numbers, 2.7 and 2.6. So I come back to this question with Kendrick Bourne and the organization. How is what's happening to Kendrick Bourne right now helping the quarterback, Mac Jones? That's the question you have to ask yourself about this team going forward. What does this decision do to the quarterback? Well, this is what it did to the quarterback in week one. Mac averaged 4.2 yak per completion in week one. You know that ranked to the NFL? 23rd. 23rd in the NFL. Well, we just told you that Kendrick Bourne was at 7.1 yak per reception last year, which was seventh best in the entire NFL. So you had a guy that can make things happen after the catch, and he was sitting on the bench the entire game. Because he's in Matt Patricia's doghouse. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous to me. So you look at it from that game also. You take out the 41-yard catch from Kendrick Bourne. Mack on throws of north of 10 yards, two for eight, 39 yards. Okay, Kendrick Bourne, one play, 41 yards. So maybe use that dynamic player. Because remember also, out of this group of guys, this these four players, Kendrick Bourne was the best in terms of yards per reception last year. So. Based on what we saw last year, Kendrick Bourne is your best guy getting down the field, and he's also your best guy after the catch. But apparently him and Patricia have an issue. I mean, this is an absolute joke to me. But I just look at those numbers that he had last year, and you just think about this. Wouldn't you look at that and say, holy shit, we really found something in free agency. We're not paying this guy a lot of money. We should try to get more out of the player. That's what offensive football is about. I mean, you look across the league, and I'm not comparing Bourne to these guys, but When you look at a team like Minnesota, they're doing everything they possibly can to get the ball to Justin Jefferson. With the Rams, they try to get the ball to Cooper Cup. Okay, you think about San Francisco. It's Debo Samuel, right? You try to get the ball in your best player's hands. The Patriots' best offensive weapon spent week one of the NFL season on the bench. It's just perplexing to me. So if you take his numbers from last year and you say, okay, he was only targeted 70 times. So the goal should have been, how do we get him 90 targets, right? I I would like 100 targets, but I'm just being conservative here because of the whole situation. But let's say you give him 90 targets. Last year, it was at 70. So if you take that catch rate, that means that he would have caught about 70 passes this year. So if you take that number and you multiply the yak per reception, you're looking at 497 yak yards last year if you targeted him those 90 times based on the numbers. So that means he would have been a top 12 receiver in the NFL in yak yards. Okay. So when I look at this stuff, obviously Belichick has this information. Obviously the Patriots have this information. Why aren't you doing everything you possibly can to find more ways to get this guy going? And the other thing I would say is Mac and Kendrick Bourne really built up a chemistry last year. 
So what I would have liked to have seen is build off that chemistry. Like you wasted time in training camp by not having Kendrick Bourne out there all the time with Mac Jones where they could develop stuff a little bit more. You want your offenses to be harder to defend. You want the offense to have some pop, start getting the ball into Kendrick Bourne's hands. Now, Matt Patricia is supposed to be putting the best product on the field from an offensive standpoint. How can you look at this Patriots roster and say, the best way to play offensive football is without Kendrick Bourne? There is no argument for it. So instead of trying to evolve as a player, Kendrick Bourne, and growing with Mac and the system, et cetera, this guy's been in the doghouse all training camp long. It's just unbelievable to me. And I don't know where Belichick's at at this, right? Because is he just, and I'm really wondering what Belichick's doing here. So is he just backing Matt Patricia because Matt Patricia is now the offensive play caller? So you don't want to sort of undercut his credibility because I have to imagine Belichick knows that he's one of the top four. In fact, the best receiver on the team. Bill has to know that, right? So now what's interesting about this is Tommy Kern reported that Robert Kraft's not happy about this. And I agree with the owner. Now the owner did. Say, hey, the rumor was trade away Jimmy Garoppolo. We're keeping the Brady guy around. He was right about that one. He's right about this one as well. You have got to get Kendrick Bourne on the field. So Patricia has to do something with this situation. And it's it, just like a conspiracy theory here. Isn't it interesting that Kendrick Bourne's not playing? Like he was essentially benched for week one. Patricia was the defensive coordinator in the Super Bowl, right? When Butler didn't play. I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there as sort of a connection. But any, anyway. Getting back to the whole theme of this organization making decisions that are in the best interest of Mac Jones, that's the first part of it. Get Kendrick Bourne on the field. It's crazy concept. Your most talented receiver, put him on the football field. The other thing is they have got to start doing some stuff that Mac's good at. How do we help Mac Jones? Well, you're not really helping him with the personnel right now. The personnel is not great, but secondarily, Kendrick Bourne's not on the field. The other part of it, they didn't help him schematically in week one. And that was the even more baffling one to me because we had heard what was going on with Kendrick Bourne. But part of what we heard is, hey, there's all these things that are happening to the offense, et cetera. But if I just sort of compare Mac and Tua from that game the other day, I was really irritated because Mike McDaniel and the Dolphins, it was clear their game plan was, okay, let's get the ball to our playmakers. Like they got the ball to Tyreek Hill 12 times. Uh, the Patriots best playmakers on the bench, but that's neither here nor there and get the ball out of Tua's hands quickly, right? So use play action, use RPOs. So if you look at Tua in this game, 136 out of his 270 passing yards came via play action and RPOs. So that's 50.4%, more than half of his yards. So what does that tell you? Mike McDaniel was scheming it up for Tua just like they did in San Francisco with Jimmy. They schemed it up for him. That's why Jimmy's numbers always look good. They schemed it up for him. They did the same thing for Tua. Okay, well, how about Matt Patricia and Joe Judge scheming it up for Mac Jones? Did we see that on Sunday? <laughs> Absolutely not. 22 of Mac's 213 passing yards came via play action and RPOs. That's 10.3%. And to put even further context on that, Mac Jones attempted two play action passes on Sunday, and he attempted zero attempts out of RPOs. I, that is baffling to think about, right? So you just look at the Dolphins, and they said, okay, well, what we knew coming into this game is Tua is not great when the progression goes away, right? When he has to improvise. So if you look at it more than two and a half seconds in that game, Tua panicked. 10 of 17, 58.8% and a 75.9 rating. But when he could get the ball out quickly, less than two and a half seconds, he was really good. 13 for 16, 81.3% and a 
1.5 rating. That goes back to Mike McDaniel saying, hey, what does our player do well? Okay, RPOs, play action. That's how we get the best out of Tua. And they were able to do that. So also look at what they created, right, with the addition of Tyreek Hill. Tua threw into tight windows in that game just 12.1% of the time. That means the closest defender within one yard. Well, last year for Tua, that number was at 19.3%. That was the highest rate in the entire NFL. So they found a way to get that percentage way down in the first game of the season by adding Tyreek Hill, playing their best playmaker, and scheming it up. With Mack, he threw into tight windows in the game the other day 17.2% of the time. Last year, he was at 15.4%. So that number went up for Mack with Tua, it went significantly down. Why? Because they schemed it up for Tua. They didn't scheme it up for Mac. And you look at the top two quarterbacks in the NFL this week in terms of RPO attempts and play action attempts. Tua was at the top of that list at 16. Herbert was second at 15. Now, Herbert threw for 125 yards at a play action in RPOs. That was 44.8% of his yardage. And we know Tua was over 50. So those two guys, Herbert last week, the second highest rated passer of the NFL at 129.4. Tua was ninth at 104.4. And he should have been better. Remember, he just threw the ball into the ground when Tyreek Hill was wide open. Like, Tua, I don't even think he played great in this game, but his numbers look good because of what the coaching staff did. So Herbert, we know without question, a top five guy in the NFL. You can make an argument he's a top three or two guy in the NFL with the talent he has. And they're using stuff in their system with the Chargers that actually helps the player. Now, they have some issues there with some of their philosophies offensively, but they use play action. They use RPOs for a guy that is incredibly talented, way more talented than Mac. Tua, we know, is limited, but they're doing the same thing they did to help limited quarterbacks in San Francisco when Mike McDaniel was there. So I just don't understand how anybody can justify going into that game on Sunday and only having, or coming out of that game, I should say, on Sunday, only having two attempts via play action and zero out of RPOs. The play action stuff, I mean, I've been going at this for basically all year going back to last year that Mac was 17th in attempts last season out of play action. It's got to be higher than that. But the other thing is this RPOs 32 attempts last year, Mac completed 28 of them, which is, I don't know, call me crazy over 88% in terms of your completion percentage. I may want to dig into that a little bit more. They didn't use it at all at Alabama. 19% of Mac's dropbacks came out of RPOs. And I'm not telling you it's going to be that high of a number, but he was one of the most efficient passers we've ever seen at the collegiate level out of RPOs. Week one of his second season in the NFL, his team attempts zero RPO passes. He was 10 of 11 in one game against Notre Dame in the semifinal. So it just feels like I don't understand why the Patriots, A, aren't using what their quarterback is good at. This is the type of shit that you should have figured out in training camp. And I'm really questioning right now, what were they doing? What were they doing at training camp? They were benching Kendrick Bourne. They weren't putting RPOs or play action into the offense. I, I just don't understand what they were doing at all. It doesn't make sense to me. It's really crazy to think about. So I just look at these decisions that the Patriots need to make going forward. Every one of them has to be this whole theme. What's in the best interest of the quarterback, Mac Jones? And what we saw the other day is they're going in between 11 personnel and 12 personnel. They really didn't find anything that works. And you just wonder what's going to change next week. And I look at a couple of other things here. One of the issues that I had last year is second and short, one to three yards. The Patriots did not throw the ball often last year. Mac Jones was exactly 20th in attempts last year on second and short. That should be a passing down because you can always pick up first down with the run on third down. Well, in this game the other day, the Patriots had 
Four opportunities on second and short. They ran it all four times. That's just not good football from an analytical perspective. It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, I do also wonder about, and I talked about this briefly with Kyrie the other day, the game management. 117 left in the second quarter. You don't call the timeout there if you're Belichick, and then eventually the Dolphins end up with a touchdown. That should be an opportunity to try to get your offense, the ball back. Bill didn't do that. And I do wonder, this is now the second year with no Ernie Adams in the booth. He made a lot of perplexing decisions from a time management perspective last year. I'm starting to wonder if they're feeling that loss of Ernie Adams. And um, one thing that I looked at, too, in that game, and if you look at the first drive of the game, I understand it ends up with an interception, but they're moving right down the field. Okay, they're scheming it up in the first drive of the game. And then Mac throws the interception, and we got into the whole thing about pass interference. No, pass interference. It was a bad pass by Mac. And why are you throwing at Howard there, one of the best corners in the league, when, they're back, when their second corner is hurt in Byron Jones, right? But anyway, getting back to my original point, they did a really good job when they got the ball in the first quarter. When was the other time they did a good job moving the football down the field? The third quarter, right after halftime. So I do wonder this. I'm just thinking out loud here. Is it possible that that's when Bill has the most involvement in sort of the play calling situation, right? Because it would make sense, right? That's the scripted place at the beginning that you're working on all week and the extended period of time at halftime to look at things. So everything else sucked for the Patriots offensively besides really those two drives. I do wonder how much of Belichick's fingerprints were on that considering what we've seen from Matt Patricia so far. One of the note with the Patriots is Ty Montgomery goes on the IR. My hope is that this means more opportunities for Ramondre Stevenson in the passing game. And just and I hope Montgomery's fine and all that, right? It's unfortunate you get injured, especially he's battling through training camp as well with an injury. But it may be good just to take that club out of the bag for Patricia and company because you have a really talented player in Stevenson. And if you look at the game last week, and part of it is because they had Montgomery in that third down role. Montgomery played 21 snaps the other day, 37% of the offensive snaps. Stevenson only played 14. 25% of the snaps, right? Just a quarter of the snaps in this game. And I understand you have Damian Harris there as well, but Stevenson's a really talented player that I just feel like you have to get on the football field a little bit more. And unfortunately, the Patriots did not do that the other day. And I'm wondering if this injury to Montgomery means we'll see more of Stevenson in week two against the Steelers and going forward as well. All right, I did want to get to some socks for a second here and the Xander Bogart situation in particular. But before that, they lose to the Yankees tonight and Familia on the mound in the 10th inning. I, I don't understand what they're doing with this guy. He absolutely sucked before he came over. He His whip was 185, which was 196 out of 196 relievers. His opponent's batting average was 338. I, I'm so sick and tired of the high and bloom. Well, he's got stuff. He's got filthy movement on it. I don't, I don't want to hear any of that anymore. Start getting guys with proven resumes. and. There's no reason for Familia to be pitching for the Red Sox. Take one of the kids up from AAA, Frank German, somebody along those lines. Bring one of those guys up because nobody wants to watch Familia anymore. This team is clearly out of it right now, and it's kind of pathetic. I mean, it's unfortunate from a Red Sox perspective that you're watching this game against the New York Yankees tonight. Judge is hitting two bombs, and the Red Sox have nothing to play for. We're in September. This should be the time where the Red Sox are getting ready for a pennant chase or at least getting ready for a wild card situation. And here we are. The Red Sox are in last place in the American League East. So it's unfortunate they're at this spot right now. So just play guys that we want to see now. 
guys that actually have futures with the organization. Like, it's great we see Tristan Cassis, although <laughs> I'd like to see him get more than three hits as a big leaguer. And two of them have been home runs, hit another bomb tonight. And I'm not saying I dealt the player or anything along those lines. But watching Bayo, watching Cassis, that's what we're looking forward to the rest of the year for the Red Sox. So no more Familia, please. Nobody wants to see that. That guy was absolutely pathetic in this game tonight. He threw 25 pitches. 13 were strikes. He walked three guys in an inning. I mean, I think that's very difficult to do. Anyway, so I wanted to get to Bogarts real quickly here because it was interesting. He did an interview with my buddy Will Fleming, of course, play-by-play guy for the Red Sox. And this is what he had to say. I know it's coming down to the finish line, and obviously stuff might get a little emotional. That's what Bogart said the other day. It's going to be emotional. Pete Abraham from the Globe reported the Phillies could be in on Xander Bogart. So this, again, is coming back to Bloom running this organization, man. He's got a lot of difficult decisions here because here's the reality of what happened with Bogarts this season. Bloom. And he would obviously deny this. And he says he loves the player. He doesn't like Bogarts as a player. He didn't like him prior to the season. But here's the thing. The thing that they were concerned about with Bogarts, you can tell just by making the fake offer, the one extra year on the contract, it would have paid him less on an annual basis than Trevor's story. They were betting against the player because he hasn't been a great defensive player throughout his career. But here's what happened to Xander Bogarts this year. He improved tremendously defensively. He deserves credit for that. And the coaching staff deserves credit for that because they worked on his first step. So if you look at this year among shortstops, he's at two defensive runs saved. That's 12th of 23. So, okay, that's pretty good. Last year, he's at minus five. That was 16th of 21. If you look at StatCast's metric, outs above average, he was at five this year. That's tied for ninth. And he was at negative nine outs above average last year. That was 20th in terms of qualified shortstops out of those 21. So the defense has been the question with Bloom, and Bogarts' defense has been significantly better than it was a year ago. And remember, defense becomes really important next season because the shift is now out of the equation. All right. So then you look at everything that has transpired and what's going to happen if Bogarts leaves. So basically, you have four shortstops that are on the market, right? Dansby Swanson, now the Braves are trying to get something done. They haven't yet. He's at eight defensive runs saved. He's one of the best defensive shortstops in the game. Correa is at three right above Bogarts, although he's played less. Trey Turner, who is a tremendous athlete, is a bad defensive shortstop. He's at minus one defensive run saved. So that's where Bogarts kind of stacks up with these guys defensively. Xander Bogarts is number one in Major League Baseball for shortstops in war. He came into today third in the American League. Six wins above replacement, which is first best of his career as well. Swanson's at 5.7. That's third among shortstops. Turner, 5.7. Fourth, Correa, 3.5. Tenth, he's been dealing with an injury. Bogarts is first in OPS. Of course, we know he's first in average as well. He's going to win the batting title in the American League. If you look at the ages, Correa's going to be entering 28-year-old season or his 28-year-old season. Swanson, 29. Turner, 30. So the same as Bogarts and Bogarts, 30. So here's the interesting dynamic. Marcelo Mayer is the number one prospect in the organization. Of course, the Red Sox. He fell into their lap because they had that awful 2020 season. You had a couple of teams that didn't draft him because of slot money, et cetera. And in defense of the Rangers, they wanted a pitcher. They got lighter. But the number one pick to the Pirates was a college catcher that could cost Ben Sherrington, our old friend, his job there. But I feel like Atlanta's going to find a way to keep Swanson, even though it's not done yet. Correa is going to the highest bidder. And let's say that they can't come to an agreement on Turner. That means Correa is going to go to the Dodgers. So then the guy that makes sense to me if they don't bring back Bogarts, not to me personally, but to Bloom would be Turner because 
of the versatility, but because he can play different positions. He's played short for a while now, but he can play second. He can play in the outfield, like in terms of if you were going to bring Meyer up in a year or two, right? But Haim has to be careful with this one because I told you the Phillies are interested. Dave Dombrowski signed Schwarber. So if the guy that was here that won a World Series in 18, it was the best team in the history of the organization from a wins perspective, if he gets Xander to go to Philadelphia, and Xander ends up being better than whoever the replacement is, because you can't just not have a replacement there. You would have to sign somebody if Bogart leaves because you don't have a shortstop. You're not bringing up Meyer, of course, to start the 2023 season. So he would really find himself in a pickle here. And if Bogarts goes to Philly and you say hypothetically sign Trey Turner and you get another story situation where story did not have the greatest year one and Bogarts does have a good year in Philly. Well, that could be one of the things that gets High and Bloom fired. Now, there's a lot of things that you can fire High and Bloom for, but I'm just saying that could be one of the things. And then you look at would the Yankees get involved. Now, I believe the Yankees would make an exception for Bogarts. Now, one of the best prospects in their organization, Anthony Volpe, of course, he's one of the best prospects in terms of their whole farm system, and he plays shortstop. But Bogarts, if you give him the contract, maybe he's willing to move around a little bit, play different positions in terms of move over to third base. And you know the Yankees would like to do that just because of the Red Sox thing. The Phillies, we know they're going to be in. And maybe the Cubs. Right? The Cubs could be in as well. But, man, I got to tell you this. Like, even if you're not the biggest Bogarts fan, which I don't know anybody that dislikes Bogarts. You can reference power numbers, et cetera. But it's been a really difficult year to watch this guy because this is a two-time Silver Slugger Award winner. This is a two-time champion. He's been the leader of this organization for years. I mean, even going back, Mookie was never a leader here. This guy was a leader, and that's not to be an indictment on Mookie. It's just Xander Bogarts is the face of the organization. He's the guy that addresses the media all the time. Before the season, he's almost crying at the podium. This week, he's saying how it's going to be emotional. All I got to say about Bloom is this. He better know what the fuck he's doing, because if he screws this one up, he's going to get his walking papers. And if they have to move on from High and Bloom, like in the next year or year and a half, it's going to be an absolutely atrocious look for the organization, considering the team that was here and the team that has now been dismantled. All right, we get time to get to a couple of calls, so let's do that. 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian, this is Sean from Worcester. And I just want to know, I know this is Bill's team and everything, but isn't Robert Kraft the one who owns the business? Shouldn't he be able to hire employees, you know, like offensive coordinators? coaches and the like if uh, it deems it necessary. I know he and Bill probably have some kind of deal where Bill just runs the team and everything, but I feel like at some point you need to step up and hire like at least one other person maybe to help out this team. It's an interesting point, Sean. So a couple of things there. The first thing is, remember a couple of years ago, we got this whole thing. Well, they're being more collaborative in the process in terms of the draft. And they basically had that fake thing where Bill's like at the draft saying, hey, we good with this? And everyone knew that Bill was in charge of everything. But I do think bringing in Elliot Wolf helped in terms of the drafting and whatnot. But they had a really good draft two years ago. We'll see about this year. I'm still waiting, to, of course, to see Tyquan Thornton. So I do think Bill is getting more help from other guys in the front office than he did previously because, of course, he really dipped off for a couple of drafts. In terms of the coaching staff with Bill, Robert Kratz essentially trusted Bill with everything which I do feel like the decision to just go with Patricia and Judge, especially after seeing what we saw in week one, it's problematic that that was the best solution. And I, I always come back to this when I think about this. Bill compared Josh to Nick Saban last year. And so his solution 
to replacing Nick Saban is Joe Judge and Matt Patricia. I don't get it. But in terms of the leash with Bill, it's very long. Think about this. Robert Kraft chose Bill over Tom. He could have said, hey, Bill, unless you give Tom the contract he wants, you're gone. I'm going with Tom Review. Bottom line, he could have done that. He didn't. He thought that Bill gave him more of the long game. <laughs> Brady's still playing at a high level the other night at 45. So he has to sort of stick with Bill because that makes his Tom decision look even worse if he moves on from Bill. Yeah, Barrett. Love the show. This is Ryan from Worcester. Just wanted to collect all the thoughts that I hear about this Patriots squad. I think I got it all figured out. All that they need are about 20 replacement players for the middle part of their roster, two true coordinators, the five or six replacement coaches, and they'll be totally fine. Oh, and Matt needs about five to ten years more experience overnight. I think they're going to be fine. Nine and seven, sneak into the playoffs. They're going to be okay. Yeah, Ryan, I think the coaching staff is probably two to three coaches away from being two to three coaches away. I, I really cannot believe what's going on with the coaching staff right now. I mean, I was at least somewhat optimistic. Hey, maybe they can dig into some stuff that Mac didn't use. They didn't do any of that. And it's Patricia and Joe Judge running the offense. You got Kendrick Bourne and Matt Patricia's doghouse. Like, I, I don't know what the hell is going on. But in terms of Mac, I legitimately feel bad for him. That dude's already out here. He's tough as hell. He's getting banged up. He now has back spasms. He's getting x-rayed after the first game. And the coaching staff is doing nothing to help the guy. You drafted him 15th overall. You should be trying to help this quarterback. They're doing nothing about it. All right, remember, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can at 617-396-7172. That is 617-396-7172. So if you want to react to anything going on with the Patriots this week, certainly welcome to do so. And remember, we're on after every game on Sunday. So if you want to vent after the Patriots hypothetically lose a game to the Steelers on Sunday, not picking that yet, but if they do and you want to vent about it, you can at 617-396-7172. We'll be back on Thursday with my buddy Andrew Filipponi from The Fan in Pittsburgh. We'll preview the Steelers game with him. Thanks to Isaiah Blakely and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 